This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we're talking about holding space. And joining me is Heather Plett, the author of The Art of Holding Space, a practice of love, liberation, and leadership. We're also going to be talking with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk all about the latest COVID numbers. What does the hammer and the dance mean? And also, how about flu season? What are we looking at? And should you go to your dentist? And sexual pain is something that affects 16.6% of women. Many women experience a condition called vaginismus. I'll be reviewing that too. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast begins now. We're all concerned about aging. In fact, September is National Healthy Aging Month. Uh, There are so many illnesses like diabetes mellitus, congestive heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and some forms of dementia that uh, can be delayed or even prevented. But these are some of the most common uh, health concerns of people as they age. Uh, the other thing I hear in my clinic all the time is pain, joint pain, um, neuropathy, um, the loss of muscle strength so is associated with um, falls, and that is also partly preventable. But uh, information, education, absorption of that, uh, and perhaps a positive attitude may help you to overcome illness and uh, also personal losses, which is which occur as people age as well, uh, as you look ahead uh, to take those steps for successful aging. So it's up to you to make those choices about lifestyle, healthcare, personal pursuits, and, and your retirement plans. Um, uh, and uh, I wanted to mention too that anxiety is such a common mental illness in in the world, and so many people face that. And I think that is a contributing factor to some of the decisions people make around their health. And I wanted to mention a couple of books that I'm reading right now. And I'll tell you the reason I'm reading them is um, you know in part so I can help my patients. So I I see lots of patients. I see them uh, in my clinic, but mostly I see them virtually these days. And so, so many patients experience anxiety. And so I, I like to recommend, you know, I really don't want to see somebody, you know, twice a week or every week because, you know, I, I don't want it to cost them unnecessary um, expense, provide, you know, have an unnecessary expense for them. I try to get people to do as much as possible. So um, to that end, I have decided that I'm going to, you know, read as many books about anxiety as I can to choose the right one that works for the right patient or that I would think would work for the right patient. So two of the books that I'm reading currently, one is called The Wisdom of Anxiety by Cheryl Paul, and which is an outstanding book. And it talks about, uh, I'm just about halfway through, so, but it does talk about, um, you know, how this is a very common condition and actually, you know, looking at anxiety as a gift and looking deeper into uh, the relationship of ang- that anxiety has to your life and, and what you can do um, to, you know, certain mantras and certain ways to approach particular situations as it relates to anxiety. She starts out with a story. She had a storybook life, a charmed life, really, and then she decided to go to Brazil um, and where she experienced, um, you know, the just horrific, um, you know, what 
viewing abject poverty and, um, you know, not having enough food and having cockroaches line the walls that, you know, made it look like the walls were, were painted black. And, um, and, but she goes through and talks about specific situations that she has experienced and that, you know, common situations that people, um, have experienced, um, everything from, uh, loss of a child um, to loss of a job to divorce and so how uh, to deal with these situations and addresses fear and so it's actually a very uh, very good book and the other one and to be honest with you I just started reading these because I was you know I'm shallow I was attracted to the title <laughs> the wisdom of anxiety sounded good to me and it is extremely wise and uh, then the other one was think like a monk by Jay Shetty he has a great podcast and it was literally the title think like a monk and you know it's a way of approaching life in a calmer fashion essentially so without going into um that the detail of that um but i think it's really important to address your anxiety if you have that i also think it's very very important to adopt and maintain healthy habits such as cigarette smoking lots of people smoke cigarettes or vape um and so you know i it's important to not to do that, but it's also important to look at why you're doing that. Um, alcoholic consumption that is up big time in, especially in the pandemic. And so taking a look at why you might be uh, drinking more than one alcoholic beverage in a 24 hour period. I can hear some people laughing out there uh, right now. Um, I had, in fact, I had a fellow in my clinical practice recently and he was saying how he was stressed out about dating. He had been recently divorced. He was kind of late fifties and, you know, this whole, this whole thing, um, about the online dating. And I'm going to be talking with a great online dating coach next week. So join me next week. Um, but how that, how stressful that was. And so we were talking about his issues and I have to ask certain questions. And one of them was about alcohol consumption. And he's like, well, I never used to drink that much before, but it certainly has increased during the pandemic. And that was associated with stress and, um, you know, getting adjusted to his new normal. Um, It's important that you exercise regularly, and that's every single day, maintaining that triad of weight bearing, aerobic exercise, and balance activities. Very important uh, for your balance as you age. Maintain a comfortable weight, you know, certainly get on that scale, get that number, and, and, you know, try to use the BMI, the body mass index as a guide. Um, but you know, do that in line with your physician or you can email me for my all in diet. I have a, a patient in Saudi Arabia. Actually, he's lost about 30 pounds, uh, in, in about six or seven weeks. And, uh, he's a diet, he has diabetes type one and his blood sugars were all over the map. And, um, so these are things you can get control of and, you know, his, his mood is better. He's calmer. He's had so many benefits, uh, to that. And his relationship is on the way to improving. Um, perhaps I'll cover that, uh, that case uh, at a later time. It's also important to maintain intellectual stimulation and socialization. So strengthen those family relationships, get out with friends, resolve those intergenerational conflicts, you know, speak up, say what you mean, mean what you say, don't say it mean, teach others how to treat you if you're being treated unfairly in your family. The other thing that's very important is to be wise in financial planning. Uh, you know, so we want to plan in advance for that retirement and don't live beyond your means and care 
carefully manage your investments and assets. We really don't know what's going to happen with the stock market. It's looking good now, but you never know. And it's also important to choose a knowledgeable physician, one that you're comfortable with, who's who's skilled in the medical treatment of older adults, uh, and ensure that you communicate your goals of care to your family and your physician. And, and this is the time where you may express your advanced directives in writing. So what would happen as you age, um, what you would like, what, what your wishes are, what you would like to do, especially in terms of, of health care. And, and it's also important to, you know, be comfortable with your future living arrangements. And so ensure that those are stable and um, satisfactory and, and clean and that you have, if you need it, you know, have the help that you uh, require. But and also be very careful in terms of rushing or um, doing too much, uh, getting up in the middle of the night. If you have overactive bladder, anything like that, get that treatment because that can actually lead to falls and fractures. So there's lots of things to do, but it's up to you to take that on and be very intentional in how you plan to age. Heather Plett is the author of The Art of Holding Space, a practice of love, liberation, and leadership, and the co-founder of the International Center for Holding Space. She is passionate about helping people grow better relationships and stronger communities where people can be wholly, authentically human. The Art of Holding Space is available everywhere books are sold, brick and mortar stores and online. And she joins me on the line from Manitoba. Good evening, Heather. Hi, Maureen. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. I, I I loved your book, I have to say. I, I, I struggled at the beginning because it's tough, um, you know, how it, it starts. I didn't expect to be crying, sobbing, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I kind of throw you in the deep end. Yes, <laughs> you certainly do. Um, but it also, I, I think anybody could relate to it. Um, nobody has a, a perfect life and we all struggle and we all have challenges and sometimes we don't uh, share those uh, with others. Um, right. And uh, But holding space, this is a term that I am very familiar with, um, but I, I don't know as I've ever known it to be what you describe. I think people have thrown it around before mm-hmm. um, in my life anyway, and in my world, in particular in my work world, um, but didn't actually understand what holding space meant. So if you wouldn't mind, if you would please define what you mean by holding space. All right. Well, thank you. I It's, um, it's a term that I first really defined about five years ago after my mom died. And that's the first chapter of the book is that story of my mom dying. And I define holding space as really being willing to show up for other people and be present with them as they walk their journey without trying to fix them or control them or change their journey or layering on our own ego. It's really um, withholding our judgment as much as we can and um, and showing up for what they need and not necessarily what we need. And, and is it being there for somebody or is it is it beyond that? Like you described getting a phone call about your mother uh, in the mm-hmm. midst of, of your work and you really had to put that work down and go and tend to, uh, you know, what was needed in your life, what you needed to do, which, which was hold space for your mother and to right. be there at her at her deathbed. Um, providing for her, walking her to the bathroom, caring for her, 
loving her and uh, which which is also a very very difficult time understanding what the outcome would be in a in a time when you didn't actually know how long you would be holding space for her yeah absolutely so in its very simplest essence it is being with is the simplest way but there's so much complexity to that being with because it brings up so much of our own stuff it brings up our own grief, our own trauma, our own fear, our own, you know, desire to control things. And and sometimes holding space feels very much out of control. So it, one of the things I talk about is um, when we are present for somebody, we have to be prepared to be with them in liminal space. And liminal space is, is really the hard stuff. That's limin is the term uh, that means in between two things and it's it's when you're going on a journey and you've left the old behind and you're entering a new place but you don't know what that place will be yet and you're in this liminal space so holding space is being present for that kind of chaos that kind of disruption um, that kind of grief whatever shows up in that and you talk a lot about ego, and you basically advise people to keep their ego out of it. We all get caught up in that trap, you say, um, when we believe, you know, our contribution is what, you know, created somebody else's success, um, or that it's dependent on whatever intervention that we had. But why is it important for people to keep their ego out of the time when they're holding space? It's it's such a tricky business, this <laughs> this holding space and keeping the ego out. And that's why I have a whole section. The second section of the book is really about learning to hold space for yourself so that you can be present for other people. Because what happens is when we when our own ego gets triggered and we're in that situation, we are going to try to change them. We're going to try to control them. We're going to layer our own things on top of them. And when we don't want to be out of control, then we're going to want to control their their outcome so that it doesn't trigger things for us. So it's really about um, how can I learn to soothe my own nervous system? How can I learn to work on healing my trauma so that my trauma doesn't end up imposing things on the other person. And that's the complexity of this work. And that's why it ended up being a book that's over 300 pages long, because it was really an attempt to support people in doing what they need to do so that they can be in those kinds of complex relationships with other people. Right. And you also talk about um, helping people feel safe enough to fail. Now, failure is not something anybody is comfortable with or likes to do or likes to have experience it with, yet we all fail and it can be the greatest gift. But when people are going through a transition, they are going to make some mistakes along the way, as you point out in the book. Um, how is it that we can help people feel safe enough to fail? And I imagine that it has to do with shame so that we, we prevent them from feeling this shame and, and realizing it's a growth period. I think it's really important as somebody who holds space to also model that kind of acceptance with your own failure. And so when I show up to hold space for another person, I'm going to have to be willing to be vulnerable. And that means admitting my mistakes. That means taking responsibility for my mistakes. That means 
entering into the relationship with as much humility as I can so that I can support them and not, um, you know, turn into or get caught up in a perfectionist mindset where things have to be a certain way. And so it's, it's learning to be authentically vulnerable and to um, allow that shame, allow that um, the, the failure, et cetera, to be revealed so that it doesn't have to be hidden. It doesn't have to become like a shadow element where people keep it out of the, uh, you know, as much as possible, hide it from people. And, and you talk about being a facilitator or a teacher of holding space, and you mention uh, people who are controlling are, are not typically the best space-holding teachers, <laughs> if you right. will. And why is that? Well, again, it goes back to your question about the ego. And I, I define one of the definitions that I came up with fairly early people uh, when I was first interviewed in the early days of talking about this. Somebody asked me, so what's the opposite of holding space? And I came up with a term, hijacking space. And hijacking space is really when we try to control the situation, when we try to um, impose our own wishes on this uh, situation, etc. And that kind of controlling is really detrimental to anybody's tender vulnerability. And 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 any of us that's had an experience where we're, you know, let's say we're feeling lost and we're feeling like we don't know what to do with our lives, for example. And if somebody else tries to control us, well, that's going to impose a lot of shame on us because then we'll feel like, oh, I must be stupid for not figuring this out. This other person has it figured out already. Why can't I be more like them? So that's the kind of thing that's going to kill somebody's spirit. But if we can be present in a way that honors their dignity and their sovereignty and their um, ability to find their own path, then they are going to be strengthened in that and they'll have the capacity for growth. Uh, I have a question about, um, do do people know when they need someone to hold space for them? And this is something that we can ask of someone else. That's a really good question. I think uh, a lot of times, and I'm, I'm the, uh, I think I have some of the most guilt in this. I'm really self-reliant, and a lot of us are really self-reliant, and we've been raised in such a way that we know how to figure things out ourselves. So we don't know how, don't reach out and ask for help because that makes us look weak, etc. So a, a part of learning to hold space is also learning to ask for what you need, and supporting other people and asking for what they need. And so that's where. I talk a lot about community building and learning to be um, co-reliant on each other where we do actually um, collectively share um, responsibility and we can turn to each other, but it's a practice. It's something that we have to learn. And there's a whole section, I think there's a whole chapter in the second section about identifying your own needs and being able to articulate that so that you can reach out to those people that can support you. And as you mentioned, that's not easy and it certainly takes practice. And the title of the book, The Art of Holding Space, A Practice of Love, Liberation and Leadership, and uh, which I'm very interested in because I imagine that applies to workplaces, 
And, uh, you know, this whole idea, you know, leadership is a, is a big word these days or a very important word, and it's kind of thrown around. Th- this book really does provide the missing link for those who do any type of transformational work. And I know you, it's about leadership as well. And I, and I just wanted to share a quick story of my own. I had a, a circumstance where I was working for a company who talked a lot about holding space. But to be honest with you, after reading your book, <laughs> I understand it much better now. I realized at that time it was words. Um, and I, I, there was a, I was scheduled for a meeting every week and every week that uh, meeting was canceled. Um, and so in retrospect, the space wasn't held for the work that I was doing and, and, you know, for me to be a part of that organization. And then I received a phone call where I received devastating news and it was the only meeting that was not canceled. Um, they decided to stay there as I received this news, started to cry, be very upset, but I had to pull myself together and continue on that meeting. Um, you know, it, I, I'd always had a bad taste in my mouth, and that was sort of my memory of this particular contract. And I'm curious if, you know, did I misinterpret? Was space being held for me? And I didn't realize um, it was just to carry on. There was no mention of, yeah, I'm sorry, or uh, it was just take the call. We'll be right. You know, we're here listening. Yeah. And uh, so that was around leadership, if you will, and, and, you know, perhaps disappointing, uh, a disappointing incident in my um, work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I worked in leadership for quite a number of years, first in government and nonprofit, and I took quite a lot of leadership courses back then. And I would say that this is definitely one of the skills that is... um, is missing from almost all the leadership programs, probably all the leadership programs I've been exposed to, because we don't really get taught how to be there in an emotional support way, in a way that supports another person's grief or fear or whatever it is that they need us to support in that time. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry to hear what you went through because there, um, yeah, it feels isolating. And I would say that if, if in that moment that you really didn't feel safe to express your emotions and to ask for what you needed, and then we go back to those needs that we talked about earlier, then space really wasn't being held for you. And it doesn't sound like those leaders were equipped to hold space because they didn't see it as a function of their leadership role. And I, I think I would love to see more and more leaders be trained in these skills so that they have the capacity because we don't work with machines. We're working with humans and we need to honor those humans and honor their dignity and autonomy and, and treat them uh, the way that they are best um, able to function as whole human beings. Absolutely. And, and this is the other thing. I think that uh, people want others to think their lives have been perfect and mm-hmm. they are perfect. And you have weaved into your book, The Art of Holding Space, um, you know, your personal life, traumas, mistakes, disappointments, mm-hmm. um, you know, which makes it that much more powerful. Um, and, you know, it's 
you share with such deep honesty and tremendous courage uh, that it actually gives such comfort to the reader um, that because we've all we've all suffered, we've all fallen, we've all failed. Um, and I think it's exactly what we need in this time, especially in this world in which we're living. Um, so in terms of relationships, uh, personal or intimate relationships, many, many, I, I see many couples in my clinical practice and I often hear this one didn't know what I needed. This one didn't hear me. This one didn't, didn't take the time, didn't bother. How can we show up and hold space for someone in our intimate relationship? Well, one of the things that I often say, and I teach these concepts in my um, a lot of different retreats and workshops, and, and unfortunately, probably the most challenging situation to hold space is in the situations where we're in greatest intimacy. So it's going to be harder to hold space for your spouse, for um, often for your parents, for your siblings, uh, than it will be to hold space maybe for a coworker or a client. And one of the reasons for that is that the greater um, impact the outcome of whatever their decisions or their grief, et cetera, the more that's going to impact you, the more you have a hard time holding it with, you know, at more at arm's length. And so you're going to want to control it. So, for example, if your spouse comes to you and says, I really want to change my job, I'm frustrated, it's a toxic workplace, well, that might cause a sudden, you know, trigger for you that you're suddenly you're fearful that you're not going to have enough money, you won't be able to pay the bills, etc. if your spouse is out of work. And so suddenly you feel the need to control your spouse's decisions, and so you can't really hold space well. So this is why... I, I really teach people how to care for yourself first, how to know when you're being triggered, how to recognize your own triggers and soothe yourself so that you can take a few deep breaths and say, okay, this isn't about me. This is about somebody I love. How can I pull my own ego out of it and be present for them? And and sometimes, to be honest with you, sometimes it's recognizing that you're not the right person to hold space. And some of the stories I share, for example, have been, um, I have three daughters, and it's been helping them find therapists, for example, when they need therapy, because sometimes mom's not the right person, because I'm too intertwined in their story, and so I need to help them find other people for the support they need. So it's using that discernment about when are you the right person, and when can you help them find somebody else for that. And, and knowing the difference, uh, I am mm-hmm. I am sure. I mean, it's it's just an amazing book. I it's I just loved I loved it so much. I will read it again. <laughs> um, and you know, it it's really um, I imagine your work helps people to live um, more in touch with themselves and more authentic and and ultimately happier. It's really been such rewarding, beautiful work. I have the pleasure of having clients all over the world and it's really helping them transform their relationships and their lives and so it's it's really quite gratifying well it's wonderful well i want to thank you so much for writing this book This is, of course, uh, the time we hold space for COVID-19 and everything that is related to that. A few numbers for you to start out with. Uh, 
The USA has had 7 million cases, just over 7 million cases. Worldwide, 31,231,509. And uh, the reference for that is worldometers.info. Coronavirus, Canada has had 143,000 cases, 9,217 deaths, and 124,691 people who have recovered. This is certainly hit uh, the world and uh, countries have dealt with it in a very similar fashion and in also very different ways as well. Many, many countries have politicized this and I think uh, you you can't help but politicize it when politicians are leading the way. But we also have scientists who help in uh, this area as well. And to that end, I am delighted to have on the line with me is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He is Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the Max Reddy College of Medicine, Reddy Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Good evening. Evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Thank you for having me on, Maureen. Oh, thanks for joining me. I think it's a little bit later where you are <laughs> than where I am. So, a night owl. I love it. Yeah, well, the, you know, the hours and days and months just don't have any meaning anymore. They so. don't, exactly. <laughs> One goes into the next. You're so right. We have no idea if it's a weekend or a Tuesday. Anyway, nonetheless, I'm, I'm delighted to have you uh, join me on the program to talk about this very important subject that is ongoing and that we like to keep a- ahead of if we possibly can, but at least uh, updated. If you have a question for Dr. Kinderchuk, the number to call is one 877 9898 that's 1-877-399-9898 dr kinderchuk i want to talk to you a little bit about and you you if you were listening you heard the numbers that uh, i revealed a few of the coronavirus numbers around the world i'd like to talk to you about this concept of the hammer and the dance as it relates to coronavirus can you explain to the listeners what exactly that is well, I, I think where we're sitting right now with this idea is is trying to really, you know, nail down, uh, you know, coronavirus transmission and, and try and, and essentially curb it as, as quickly as we can. And that's the, the, the problem that, that we face right now with this virus is that, uh, you know, unfortunately, it, it spreads quite, uh, quite easily amongst people. Um, we, you know, each person that gets infected is not necessarily going to, to have symptoms. Uh, it's very much unlike, you know, Ebola, which which I've dealt with in the field before uh, and worked with for over a decade. Um, this virus, we, we just don't see, uh, you know, that, that those kind of drastic um, uh, clinical symptoms in, in everybody that gets infected. So the, the problem that we run into is how do you curb, uh, you know, the transmission of a virus when you can't necessarily tell where it is and, and where it uh, where it's impacting uh, on a moment to moment basis. And for us, I, I think what we need to do uh, is really to clamp down as quickly as possible to try and, and curb transmission and not give uh, this virus any air or any oxygen to continue to burn through our population. And hopefully then afterwards, you know, we, we can celebrate and, and get back to, to, you know, some level of normalcy, uh, you know, in an expedient fashion. But uh, it's, man, it's, it's been a difficult nine months with this. It certainly has been. And is it fair enough to say that when the virus entered the community, it's initially nine months ago, it was like it, it, in, in a way uh, it came down like a hammer and we had to deal with it like a hammer, i.e. 
uh, lockdown and take making strategies to curb that transmission. But then once it's in the community, after it has that initial entrance, um, and then we start to open things up, that's the time that we need to actually learn how to, to live with this virus. We need to learn how to dance with this virus. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we look back, I mean, I, I've been you know involved in COVID pretty much from uh, right from December 31st onwards, when when the first announcements came out uh, through uh, through social media about this SARS-like illness, um, you know, we, we saw very quickly the uh, you know the Chinese government institute massive lockdowns in in mid January, and I think much to the chagrin of, of many public health officials who who looked at this and said, is you know, is this actually morally uh, right to do? Um, I think now what what we're seeing is that you know this. That, that there were reasons for, for why they were doing this. I and mean, there was obviously a, a concept of how easily this virus was transmitting amongst their population. And the, the issue that, that we've run into is that now that it's spread worldwide, um, trying to figure out how to break down transmission in our communities while also you know, trying to open things back up to some extent because people still have to do you know, some amount of, uh, of, of their you know, kind of normal lives. Um, it is a really a, a delicate balance and a delicate dance. And, and I think the problem is, is we are learning more about this virus uh, each day. So the, you know, really the, uh, you know, the, the protocols and, uh, and the rules for how to do this are, are changing, uh, you know, as, as quickly as they are made. And what do you say to the anti-maskers, if you will, the people who or the people who say uh, I was speaking to somebody recently and he said, as soon as the American the U.S. election is over, this virus is going to magically disappear because it's been so politicized. What, what do you say to somebody like that? A, a Trump <laughs> yeah, supporter, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, we, we, without throwing out a, a lot of expletives, I, you know, it's I, I'm. I think where we are right now is, is understanding that, you know, viruses have had, you know, eons to evolve and, and, and what they do is extremely efficient um, and, and they do it very well. So this idea that, you know, uh, you know, masks are infringing on, on our rights, it, it is the probably easiest thing that we can do as human beings to protect the most vulnerable around us. And, and I, listen, I grew up in the prairies in Canada. I think that there's, um, you know, part of our, our nature is to protect those around us when and where we can. And we've been doing this for generations. And I think now is the time that if there's something as simple as being able to put on a mask that is going to you know, potentially reduce transmission and, and potentially uh, you know, reduce infection as somebody that simply can't handle it with, with their own immune system, it, it is the least that we can do. Um, as far as disappearing, I mean, listen, we've you know, look at the cases that, that we're seeing right now in, in Ontario and Quebec and the resurgence that we're seeing, the resurgence we're seeing in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not something that is going to, to magically disappear if, if we just, uh, you know, don't bother to, to focus on it. Um, you know, it, it didn't in 1918. Uh, it certainly did not in 1957, 1968, 2009 with influenza pandemics. Um, we have to learn from, from the history of infectious diseases and, and realize the situation that, that we unfortunately are in right now. I have a, a caller on the line, uh, Catherine from Surrey, British Columbia. Good evening, Catherine. Hi. I, I, Hi, I was wondering, you know how there's always these false positives, false negatives? I was wondering, have they ever thought about doing like maybe three tests, a best of three or something like that? Good question. Yeah, so 
Dr. So this is a great question, Catherine. So what, what, what I can say is that, you know, when, when we were doing, so I, I led um, uh, diagnostic efforts in, in uh, West Africa during the Ebola um, outbreaks, and, and we were traditionally uh, looking at, at three negatives to, to have a patient that would be released from, from hospital. Um, where we're sitting right now with this virus is, that, you know, the issue that we have, um, the tests are only going to be sensitive down to a, a certain level. So if, you know, if you think about it as being a, a bag of marbles, um, you know, once you get down to, you know, say less than 10 marbles, um, you know, the, the efficiency in the test being able to pick that up um, is drastically reduced, and you start getting false negatives and false positives. And the issue that we get into is that even with multiple tests, um, what, what can happen is that you may still be at that level of sensitivity. And then you have to start to look at this idea of doing it over, say, maybe a few days. Um, so if somebody is, uh, you know, has been a close contact and they're a false negative, um, if they come back 24 hours later or 48 hours later, um, your assumption is that the, the virus likely is going to continue to increase, creating copies of itself, and you'll get above that sensitivity. But it, the unfortunate aspect is that, you know, the, the tests still can't tell you at every moment in time whether or not you are positive or negative. So we, we, we still rely on, on symptoms. And I think that goes back to this idea, if you have a false positive, um, yes, then, then repeated testing, but also having those people remain isolated or stay isolated is absolutely critical. Thank you very much, Catherine, for that great question. Uh, it brings to mind uh, something. Uh, typically with viruses, Dr. Kinderchuk, it's a constellation of symptoms. Somebody might have a runny nose exclusively or a dry, scratchy throat. But is it more likely that they uh, would need testing for coronavirus if they had nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, shortness of breath, not the vomiting, shortness of breath, um, chest pain, as opposed to just a runny nose or just a sore throat? Well, this is such a great question, right? And it's why, you know, when, when we look at, so I work on high consequence uh, pathogens, when we talk about these viruses, we often talk about the onset, onset of symptoms looks like influenza-like symptoms. So we know that many different viruses look very similarly at the start. For, for COVID, I think we're, the position we're still in is that the loss of taste or smell seems to be the, one of the few factors that maybe delineates uh, COVID from other respiratory illnesses. But I, I still don't think we're at a point right now, I'm not a clinician, I'm a virologist, but um, I don't think we're at a point where we can say, you know, this symptom or, or these few symptoms will differentiate, uh, say, COVID from, from influenza uh, and I think, you know, that's where we get in this whole idea of, of promoting influenza vaccination, because we're hoping that ultimately, if you have somebody that has those symptoms and they've been vaccinated, uh, say for influenza, at the very least, you might be able to say the probability is that it's not influenza. Now we can maybe hone in on on COVID instead. Interesting. I, I, I do know a few people who've been uh, had positive tests and that they did have that differentiating symptom. They did have the loss yeah. of sense of taste um, or smell, but that doesn't necessarily mean, or does it, that if you have loss of sense of taste or smell, that you have coronavirus? No, I don't think we can say yet, you know, that that's going to be a, a definitive uh, characteristic for, for an absolute positive. I think it's, again, it's going to fit in with that field of symptoms, right? And And also with you know, going back to this idea of, you know, contacts that have maybe have had COVID and, and travel history, um, we are looking at, at basically, you know, an entire range of, of different factors and variables that, that have to be taken into account. 
you know, on top of, you know, whether or not a, a test is negative or, or positive. Well, I have a great question for you. I, I, I was, I went to the dentist just before the pandemic hit, I had everything done. And now I'm just upset OCD about my teeth <laughs> uh, because I'm actually a little nervous to go back and I have a fabulous dentist. So here's a question from Alice in Vancouver. Hi, Maureen, listening to your show now. Is it safe to go to the dentist? I have put off hygiene cleaning as I am fearful. Thank you, Alice. What do you think? think? You know, this is a great question. So I've actually had quite a, quite a few dentists that have, that have asked my, my opinions on, uh, on where we sit with the, you know, the, the virology and transmission for, for this virus. Um, you know, where we are right now, and, and actually this, the US CDC just updated their guidance the last couple of days in regards to transmission, and, and they've actually uh, come forth and said that likely, you know, droplets as well as small particle aerosols um, are, are likely contributing to transmission. So where, where this fits into uh, dentistry is this idea of, you know, when we get, you know, kind of get into these procedures that may generate aerosols, um, you increase the, the potential for spread. And, and we know that in, uh, in close proximity, that people that um, are infected, uh, that, that don't know yet that, that they actually are infected or don't have symptoms, can also spread virus. So now it becomes a, a real issue of trying to figure out um, you know, how best to, to gauge whether or not to go. And part of it is the screening procedures that, that the clinics are doing so that they, um, you know, what are they asking? What questions uh, are they using to try to ensure that, that their patients are, are safe and not infected? And, and what are the, you know, the infection prevention and control procedures that are being used within the clinic to, to try and reduce transmission? So, I, you know, I, I think right now, the one thing we're not seeing are, are a lot of cases or a lot of uh, transmission events that appear to be related back to uh, to, to dentist clinics uh, or, or um, uh, you know procedures uh, related to dentistry, and I think that's a positive. I think that they're taking it very seriously. Um, so uh, again, I think it's safe, but you also have to uh, take into account. You know, have you been in in any sort of precarious position where you may have become infected? And and it is such a a big question of trust right now, and and trying to ensure that you are doing everything you can in, in your own life as an individual to reduce and mitigate any sort of uh, transmission. And it just made me think of workplaces in general. Um, in terms of um, small particle aerosols, so would that be thing? Would things like fans and and uh, diffusers actually transmit those small particle aerosols? Uh, you know, so this is such a great question, right? And and the unfortunate aspect is that. We, we are at a relative infancy with this virus. I, I keep saying to people, I, I've worked on Ebola for 10 years. It's been around for 44 years, and, and I think we're still in the infancy in understanding that virus. Um, in, in just over you know, eight and a half months with, uh, with SARS coronavirus 2, we understand a lot, but we don't understand everything. And, and ventilation is the one aspect that, that we still are really struggling with fully understanding what the implications are. So this idea of you know, how do fans and, uh, and air currents within rooms uh, and ventilation as a whole play a role in, in transmission of the virus? And I think we're getting some better perspective on it right now, but I don't think we fully understand the complete picture yet. And is it better to work outside? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, absolutely. I mean, when we look back at the data that's been uh, kind of accrued so far for this virus, um, I think there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that suggests that the, you know, the majority of infections or at least the majority of transmission events seem to be related back to, uh, to, to indoor gatherings. Um, of course, it's going to be difficult as we move into winter, in particular in Canada. Um, 
but it, but it is one of these facets that we we seem to at least kind of see you know repeated over and over again is that outdoor transmission isn't as strong it still can occur um so we still need to be careful but it's probably a, a much better alternative than, than being indoors and one more question before we have to go. Um, Australia had a mild flu season, likely from masks and social distancing and hand washing, and we're headed into flu season here. Do you think there's some hope, and, and especially if people get the flu vaccine, uh, hope well, that we may see that as well? I'm always optimistic, right? So I, I think that there's, that, that there's the possibility. I think Australia's, you know, in, in the Southern Hemisphere serves as a good guide, um, but it's not written in stone. So I think we have to uh, continue to do the right things right. Vaccination is going to be absolutely critical this year, in more so probably to reduce the toll on our healthcare workers because flu puts a lot of people in the hospital each year. Exactly. Um, but but we can hopefully reduce uh, the the burden of this virus. Dr. Kendra Chuck, you've been awesome. Thank you so much. Definitely going to have you back. In fact, I'd love to have you back next week to cover what we didn't cover tonight. <laughs> Thank you so much. Absolutely. And this is also a big deal. Vaginismus is when the muscles of a woman's vagina squeeze or spasm when something is entering it like a tampon or a penis. And the pain can range from mildly uncomfortable to very painful. There are two types. There's primary and secondary. Primary is when the woman has had this type of pain her entire life um, and she's never been able to insert anything into her vagina. And it's also called lifelong vaginismus. The secondary is when a woman has had sex before without pain, but then it becomes difficult or impossible. The other name for this is acquired vaginismus. The symptoms are painful sex or dyspareunia. It, it's, that's often the first sign of vaginismus. And the pain happens only with penetration and typically goes away upon withdrawal, but not always. There are some other symptoms of vaginismus that are um, that a woman may experience um, they not being able to have penetrative sex or insert a tampon, fear of pain or sex, and loss of sexual desire, of course. These symptoms are involuntary, and you know, women have no control over this. But this is the kind of condition that a lot of women may be told that, that may, a lot of women may be dismissed because many doctors don't have the training or the time to actually deal with something. And, and you know, doctors don't exactly know why vaginismus happens. It can be linked to, and I hate to say this, it can be linked to anxiety, but it can also cause anxiety it can also be linked to fear of having sex. I've had some patients in my clinical practice who were told their sex education was that sex was going to be so painful, it's going to hurt that, of course, by the time they did at the age 30, at the age of 30, it did hurt. Uh, some women will have vaginismus in all situations and within every single object and others only have it in certain cases, like with one partner, maybe they're fairly well endowed or, um, but not others. The diagnosis is done through a pelvic exam that uh, doctors will do a differential diagnosis um, and look for other health conditions that may be causing you pain. And the treatment involves Kegel exercises and it also involves um, you know, uh, vaginal dilators um, sometimes as well. You might start with inserting your finger, one finger, and then up to three fingers, and then you may be able to add... Um, uh, so the dilators. And, and then also sometimes if anxiety is at the root of it or it's been causing a tremendous amount of anxiety, then uh, it may be advisable to actually go to 
um, a therapist or a counselor, somebody who is uh, experienced in treating women uh, with vaginismus. Um, And so therapy often helps in that situation. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.